I think that human identity and our expressions of it and our relationships to institutions and other people are incredibly dynamic. And we need a standard with really, really, really broad expressive capacity and a standard that started out from seeking to create a standard with broad expressive capacity rather than something else that's also in the market competing right now, like mobile driver's licenses. Well, they started out being like, we want a driver's license on a phone. Okay, but that doesn't mean you should take the standard you developed for that and apply it to everything because they don't think it's not going to work because it's going in the wrong direction. You can take a verifiable credential and go, how do I express a driver's license in it? Let's do that. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX, and I'm Michelle Dennity, your co-host and guide through the intersection of privacy, security, and digital technology. Today, we welcome Kalia Young to Smarter Markets for our latest series examining the evolution of digital identity and how self-sovereign identity specifically can help bring trust and privacy back into a consent-based economy. Kalia is one of the world's leading experts in self-sovereign identity and identity on the blockchain. She is also the co-author of A Comprehensive Guide to Self-Sovereign Identity and is widely known as The Identity Woman. I love that so much. Also, the name of her blog and Twitter handle. Ms. Young has committed her life to the development of an open standards-based internet layer that empowers and enables the people and was named one of the most influential women in tech by Fast Company magazine. Stay tuned. Identikit Sequent X with the Identity Woman is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Kalia, Kalia, Kalia Young, otherwise known as the Identity Woman. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Thanks, Michelle. I'm so glad to have you here. And I was talking to her before we went uh, live. Does she wiretap? What is the relationship with Kalia? Explain. (laughs) So I got asked this question one of the first times I went to RSA, and I had no idea it was an acronym for the federal wiretapping provisions that many people there knew about. Um, but we are spelled differently. It's a homonym, but not the same spelling. I like it. And you know what? I, I like the sort of um, attenuated pun, I'll call it, in that the identity woman and is a homonym with Kaleo, the wiretap, like anti-identity. I guess I guess it's hyper-identity if they want to spy on you and catch you and put you in the clink. So let's start from the name and the core of the identity. How did you arrive at your status as A, queen of identity, B, the moniker, the identity woman? So that didn't 
really come from that status yet. It it began actually when I started blogging in 2005 and Doc Searles had gone around to, and this was before blogging was like big. It was sort of like, I often find myself to be a late early adopter. And he went to many people in our community and was like, you should have a blog. And so he you know, just poked uh, several of us and our community got started blogging and reading everybody's RSS feeds every day and then responding to what people heard. And it was a great compliment to our mailing list conversations. You know, when you start a blog, you need a cool name. And I was the only woman I'd sort of met in an all-day meeting about identity things at that point really early on. And I was like, I guess I'm the identity woman. Like, I don't see any other women. (laughs) here. <laughs> Where did they all go? I love that. And you know, my my married name is Denity. And so my consulting business before this one was called The Identity Project. So I was always that Denity woman rather than The Identity woman. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> so it was kind of an interesting uh, twist of, of fate. So a lot of the listeners are not familiar with Doc Searles and the origins of the species of identity as a discipline, as a set of technologies, as public policy, and all the things, and, and why it's not part of security, privacy, governance, and yet it is. So let's go into the Wayback Machine. Let's sort of introduce Doc Searles uh, virtually to those who may not know and love him. And how did you get started and in, in approaching into identity? And let's let's talk about it a little more in, in sort of the context of, of a smarter market. So a smarter market, as we discuss it, is blockchain and different types of currency, NFTs, environmentalism, so that it actually, we have enough planet and power to power the planet going forward, privacy, security, blah. So how does identity and going back to the beginnings of this community of identity professionals, how did that get started and and how, where, what, why, and who I think a good starting point is a conference that I met many of the people that were at the founding of our niche of the identity world, which is Digital Identity World, the conference. And at the time, it was full of enterprise identity and access management vendors, many of whom were eaten by the big fish in the pond, like IBM and RSA and and others. So there was a lot of startup activity around solving enterprise identity access management problems. In the years before, there was something called the directory wars. So there were lots of, you know, people now speak about them fondly. Apparently at the time, they're kind of intense, whereas the standards around SAML were really struggled over and innovated. But those standards were all about the enterprise. And At Digital Identity World, there was this little few people who were like, wait, what about the people? Yeah. Remember the why we're here? Yeah. And you had, at the time, also things like Microsoft had acquired a company called Firefly that had a thing called Passport. And Microsoft's like, we're going to provide the identity for everybody on the internet. And everybody's like, no, we're not. And Oracle and Sun had spun up Liberty Alliance. So that was like the other big companies. 
And then like the community I had gotten connected with via Planet Work, which is my in into the digital identity world, had started something called Identity Commons, where people were going to own the whole layer of the internet for the people because it's our layer because we're the people. It shouldn't be owned by corporations or by governments. So that crew found each other within digital identity world and started a mailing list that became the Identity Gang mailing list affectionately after the Gilmore Gang had this epic podcast episode with a bunch of people from that event. And it became a mailing list and the mailing list decided it should meet. And that meeting became the Internet Identity Workshop, the first one that we held in October 2005. And I still co-convene it every six months. We're having our 33rd one coming up. Wow. And we are the core of the, you know, the center of our gravity is user-centric digital identity. Now there's some emerging tech that we would call self-sovereign digital identity or decentralized digital identity. To me, it's all the same. We've This is where we've gotten on that path after 16 years. I'll say about my own personal beginnings. It was via a network called Planet Work that convened a conference in the year 2000 called Global Ecology and Information Technology. And out of that conference, they hosted a 18-month-long think tank called The Link Tank that published a paper called The Augmented Social Network Building Identity and Trust into the Next Generation Internet. And I read that paper when they started circulating it in 2002, and it was formally published in 2003. And I was like, yes, this will change the world. And they were naming the fact that it was essential for open standards to be innovated for user-centric identity so that in the future, people would be at the center of managing their digital representation of themselves, not corporations or governments. And so I've been kind of on that quest ever since. And I think we're pretty close to have some great standards available for innovators to build on top of to make that true. It's so funny. We've had so many very close misses to work together over the years because, of course, I was, you know, part of the Liberty Alliance. And I remember that paper incredibly well. And I approached it as from a privacy perspective of self-sovereign, you know, safe privacy places and choices and freedom. Where do you think we are from a handful of worthy collaborators and, and academics and big thinkers? How do you feel like progress has like moved out into the world? And who do you think is sort of the driver and the passion behind a self-sovereign identity or set of identities? That's the key. SSI is all about being able to get various assertions from various parties that may know that information about you and put them into your hands so you can share with them who you are. I think sometimes we're marketing it all wrong. We should call it infinitely scalable, low-cost federation. It basically puts the person as the pivot point of those federations. So that's, you know, as long as I have a credential in that format, anybody who reads that format could process it and verify it. And it could be your credentials from school, your credentials from your last employer, your credentials from 
you know, what yoga class you took last night and could also be something as serious as your green card. The Department of Homeland Security is moving towards implementing this technology for things like green cards and immigration visas and that kind of thing. Well, two questions is kind of that that last point really tripped. One is, is there such a thing as an ephemeral identity? So can I get a green card and then decide, hey, it ain't so great here. I'm going back home. Do you have to be linked to the last thing you did? No. Well, that's the whole point of SSI, right? Is you, you get credentials, you share them where you want to. I think of verifiable credentials as it's a good standard because it has broad expressive capacity, meaning like email is a standard with broad expressive capacity. You can do lots of things in an email, HTML, again, it's not infinite, but there are there are infinite po- composable possibilities with it as a tool that has brought us a very creative and dynamic web. And I think that human identity and our expressions of it and our relationships to institutions and other people are incredibly dynamic. And we need a standard with really, really, really broad expressive capacity and a standard that started out from seeking to create a standard with broad expressive capacity rather than something else that's also in the market competing right now, like mobile driver's licenses. Well, they started out being like, we want a driver's license on a phone. Okay, but that doesn't mean you should take the standard you developed for that and apply it to everything because they don't think it's not going to work because it's going in the wrong direction. You can take a verifiable credential and go, how do I express a driver's license in it? Let's do that. And like a billion other things. Yeah, let's start from the the point of infinity and grab onto things that are present and urgent rather than the other way around. So it, it sort of leads me to my next thought, which is when I think about the personas who engage in these sorts of things, well, I'll make a presumption and then I'll let you push off against it or for it or whatever. I suspect that millennials and boomers and Gen Z have variant appetites for actually curating these things. What are your thoughts of, and obviously, you know, everything usability will vary, right? Individuals vary, so they aren't their voting block. Um, But I do see behaviors that are fairly consistent across different generations and different cultures. So, How do you see the youngsters versus the middles versus the closer to retirement folks? That's a great question. I think we don't, haven't seen quite enough adoption in market to really make an assessment. Now you've got me thinking we actually have a special topics half day IIW coming up focused on user experience. And I'm like, that's a great question. Let's ask the user experience people if they've noticed a difference when they're doing user testing between different age graphics. I'm not really sure. It's interesting to even watch millennials versus Gen Z's approach to how do I order a pizza? You know, like there's the mom, can I have the credit card? And then there's the, I'll only order it if it's online on the app that I'm currently using. And if not, I'll eat cold cereal and it's cool. And then there's 
there's a whole generation of people who've never picked up a telephone to actually have a, a back and forth conversation and, and may never. And that's my 15 year old. So uh, I'm wondering how these various approaches and interfaces and even just sort of cultural niceties are displayed. And then on the other side of it is the cultural thing. If you came up through a collective society, how much of this is driven by collective expectations so that yes, you're self-sovereigning your identity, but you're identifying your own personhood through a lens of collective. There's a lot of human here. How do you get human baked into the identity structure? In terms of the humanness and sort of generational things, I think one of the things I'm really excited about in this set of standards is coming forward is a protocol called DID Communications, DIDCOM, which stands for Decentralized Identifier Communications. It basically creates pairwise decentralized identifiers between one person or one business and another business or another person, right? So it creates a secure channel that you can send whatever you want on. And it does mutual authentication. One of the things you could send along is like proof that you actually are the pizza joint to the person who's like, you know, like right now we're living in a pretty insecure internet universe where we have this client server architecture. There's very limited mutual authentication between the person and the businesses that they're interacting with. And it causes problems. You become at risk for phishing and stuff because you think it's your bank, but it's really not. But imagine if you and your bank created a DIDCOM connection and every time you want to talk to your bank, you use that same secure connection that's just for them and the apps have it embedded. And one of the early adopters of this is the credit union network in the United States, which is, you know, they had to pool their R&D resources because they're little and get with the next generation of tech to increase their security as a collective. And they're thrilled about this. It puts usable PKI in the hands of real people. Security folks should be all over this. But that's part of the humanness is now I can build connections and relationships with my my friends and my the organizations I'm connected with, whether it's a church or a sports team or you know, the knitting club, it doesn't matter. Now we all have these new tools to help us connect and share. And I think in terms of that question about the individual versus the collective, I think I've been studying more about the history of identity and identity systems and where they've come from, because they're really an emergent property that has, they've emerged out of large scale, complex mass communities, which are entirely new in the last thousand years didn't really exist before. And so that's also in the last thousand years, contemporary institutions have come into being in part because of some of the social dynamics that emerged in Europe with the destruction of kin-based institutions by the Catholic Church's long-term policy to like pull them apart by banning cousin marriage. And the book, The Weirdest People in the World goes into all this. But I actually think those are the roots of where we get to contemporary institutions and contemporary institutions have no memory other than their administrative records. That is their memory. Because when I show up at Institution X and I don't know the person at the door, the way I prove I'm part of the institution is to show the credential that I was given by the institution, whether it's my school or the local YMCA or whatever, right? And so 
Administrative systems to remember people in an abstract way are, in fact, a key driver of institutions. It used to be this was done on paper, and now we're transitioning it to digital. And I don't see it as bad. I think we just need to understand it's a tool that helps our, you know, everything function. And then the question is, how is that, how is that done in right relationship with people so that it isn't doing things like we've currently designed where every time I use one particular or if I want to somehow share an attribute from one institution with a different institution, they have to talk to each other and share information. It doesn't change the dynamics of our current world of institutions and things from them, but it changes how we can move between them. It changes how people are centered potentially now in new ways with their own agency and their own digital self to interact with that institutional digital self, and that we're not just at the affect of them assigning us an identifier and then us having to remember a username and password to connect to them and like having a 300 of them. That's crazy making. Let's get an app with usable PKI, secure channels, put the complexity in the individual's agent or wallet, then really build from there, hopefully tools that are empowering and people-centered. Yeah. So I'm sort of, I'm, I'm living in the future world of Kalia and I'm imagining, which is fascinating because in my mind, I'm, I'm the C-based Kalia is like all over this. How do we collectively as a society know what's going on? How do we value one user over the other if we're all individually connected organisms? Does it start to become more like a pod of activity versus individuals? And then for the individual themselves, see, I told you I have a hard time with one non-complex question. If we are a pod, is that more empowering or isolating for a pod member? Are we backing into collectivism accidentally? I'm I'm kind of confused. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean by a pod? <laughs> I went three ways, so I'm not surprised. I I think if I am a government, or I'm even an investor, or or someone looking at the health and governance of a company. If I'm assigning you the credential, of course, I've got the power and you've got to memorize the thing and maybe I'll make it slightly more convenient for you to change your password or whatever. But from a governance perspective of that relationship, you're the customer. I am the you know person on the rock. If we have the world of Kalia in the future, we're all sort of on the same level bargaining with each other day by day, hour by hour. How do we make sense of what's good? Yes, and, right? So the entities I'm interacting with today that assign me assign me usernames and passwords to interact with them and sort of drive me crazy, they're going to hand me a verifiable credential that says... Okay, so they'll know someone is interacting with them, whether or not it's you or not. They'll 100% know it's me. In fact, they'll know more, for sure more it's me because it's way more secure for them than a username and password, right? So they're going to hand me a verifiable credential that says, when you show up and talk to me again, use this credential to tell me who you are and talk to me on this secure channel that's going to stay persistent. 
So you're, when you're evaluating that interaction as the enterprise side of the, the equation, you're actually getting a lot more data. You're, you're liable for a lot more fiduciary care of that more intimate view of your customer. How are you getting more data unless you ask for it? Because you're, you're going to give it. No, and you're going to no. give it, right? You're going to want to give it. Because you're going to want to interact more, you're, you're going to trust them, you're going to feel safer. Maybe if they ask for it. I mean, the other option too is that they outsource their storage of data about you to you. So how do they judge their own performance with serving you and your needs? That's what I'm trying to figure out is like, how do we, how do we look at this relationship as a an ongoing, whether it's commercial or it's a, a social good. So, you know, you go into a church or whatever. How do we look at safety and success? We know that the system is safe. How do we know that we're having the right interactions at the right time if we're only getting the stuff that each individual consumer chooses to share? Playing devil's advocate a bit. Sure. I mean, Part of the problem right now is to get more information about the consumer or the individual. Those companies are paying data brokers lots of money to get mostly incorrect information. I call it surveillance where. Yeah. So why not just ask people for the information and build, like, if you want to know more about your customer, you could ask them and they can share it with you if they want or not. But, and like I said, said, you can potentially outsource the storage of your company's information about a person because when they interact with you, there's data generated and they go, great, here's your data back from our interaction. When you show up again, you can share it with us again and we'll have persist. They can actually reduce their own storage of PII of people and still provide them good service because they don't need to keep all the data because the person can store it. I mean, I co-chair the secure data store working group where we're thinking a lot about like how do people have their own data stores of information in a standardized persistent way so they can pick data store providers and move um, without losing all the integrity of their data and the the connections right so this is a complement to that kind of didcom and verifiable credential exchange which is more in the moment stuff as opposed to long-term data management and storage of the data I generate as I do my things. Yeah, I, I sort of put a frame around the way we do it now is the surveillance economy, whether you're buying or spying. And what you're talking about is the consent economy. And from a, you know, a, a recovering chief privacy officer, uh, now a software provider, I would love to have less data selfishly. It makes my job so much easier. I loved thin client. I loved the Sunray. I still have like an effigy in my garage because I never had to go around and figure out what was sticking that wasn't supposed to be there at the end point. So what you're really talking about is individuals taking greater responsibility, governance, and having secure stuff. And you are going to be the one who's probably the most motivated to make sure your identity is the way you want it. Versus a customer who can actually still show their investors, I've made a sale, I've performed a service, I've paid my taxes with the metadata on top, rather than all of these intimate details that they don't really want. And even though they do tons of analytics on them, basically like all of the king's horses and men and servers have 
you know, arrived at the fact that I like shoes, although I haven't worn them in a year and a half. Right. Seems kind of silly. Like literally, I, I like shoes. They're everywhere. It's an issue. So I, 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 I like where you're going with that. You also have a crew in our community talking about something called vendor relationship management and sort of also life cycle change. Like, okay, someone has a baby. Guess what? They're buying a whole bunch of new products. They might want to signal to the market, advertise to me. But when they've made their product choices, they're like, leave me alone. You know, these things like buying a house, getting a car. But people actually know their own intentions. Right. And they could, if we let them actually express those and have like agent based inboxes that help them manage that and then turn it off. Like if there's some points where you want advertising, please tell me what, but not all the time. It drives us bananas. And I don't really want stalkers, you know, the kind of stalker economy that we have. I think it's incredibly powerful because, well, I'll, I'll tell you my, one and only idea I pitched to Mark Zuckerberg back in the day. So he actually was still showing up at Privacy Doodahs when he was out here in his offices on on Page Mill out here in the Bay Area. So he came in and, and I said, you know, I've been advocating for children's integrity and uh, identity theft in kids because credentials are so fungible right now. It's a really, really huge problem. And the startup I was advising at the time, like they're lucky stars because I they ran a check on what they did on my kid because I wanted to see what customer service was like in the platform. And sure enough, my eight-year-old then had had our identity stolen twice. Once 11 years before her birth, we were issued a financial birth defect with the worst credit score possible at age zero. And so what I said to Zuckerberg was, um, an all clear idea, I'll give them the, the heads up. They fixed it for, for my little girl. Zuckerberg, I said, you know what I would love to see because of this raging pandemic of identity theft against children. And, and unfortunately, parent on child abuse of identity is a serious bias based, color line based, impoverished based problem. So if you don't have credit, you're going to get credit. And sometimes it's not going to be good for your kids, but they're going to eat. So anyway, all of that aside, uh, what I suggested, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is, you know, time capsules were really big when I was a kid. Why can't I have a time capsule to keep all of my little awards for my spelling bees and my Girl Scout badges and my SAT scores and all these things. And when I turn 18, I get the key. The key pair goes away for anybody else. And if I want to share because I'm applying to college or I want to, you know, whatever, I have my own memory capsule that I have self-sovereignty over. And he just rolled his eyes at me and said, yeah, we sell ads. And then he ran away. <laughs> There's a whole set of work being done around guardianship of identity for elders and children and folks with disability and how do we support those who steward others' identity doing so on their behalf until they're capable of doing it themselves and they get the keys. Yeah, I think it's um, identity hits. You know, we, we touched upon the market power of it, changing market dynamics. And so I've sort of pushed you into the corner of bias and 
more humanness. So identity and how we perceive ourselves, how we display our identities, how we decide to assign ourselves identities in various times. How do you advocate for the right ethic when it comes to this kind of a powerful movement of self-sovereign identity? That is an excellent question. Do the rich get richer? (laughs) And I don't know. I think that there are really interesting projects in the community. One of them is with migrant farm workers in Southern California, supporting them, collecting credentials for training that they're doing on the job so that they can prove the next season they already did the full training and they just need the booster training and not, you know, that there are real use cases for marginalized communities that potentially are are good. But I think it takes us being really clear that the communities that are being, we're seeking to serve with those tools and credentials must be involved in the creation of these systems and not just like sort of landing from outer space and being like, we're helping you. (laughs) Yeah. Aren't you lucky? I have, I mean, I think there are legitimate concerns that are being raised about the implications of this technology and its potential widespread diffusion. I think we will need laws that limit the powers that verifiers have to request certain information. If we don't, they'll ask for, some of them will ask for all of it. Others will be very good actors and be respectful, right? So, you know, at the same time, I think, I imagine just like the security industry at large, there's issues with representation in the companies building these tools. And, you know, I am one woman who works is is very lucky to be in a significant leadership role in this community. And I do my best to be an ally to other women and to people of color joining and working in the community. But I also know that there are many of them that have had negative experiences and chosen to leave our industry because of that. We also need to think about how we go beyond kind of narrow codes of conducts for, well, I have never worked inside a corporation. So within a corporation, you have a whole set of HR things and there's problems in that world, but there's at least somebody, maybe you, there's maybe somebody you maybe could talk to. Like, and within the conference world, there's also like an emergent set of things around code of conducts, et cetera. But I think there is deeper work to be done than just that. What happens if you show up for a year in a conversation and the person speaking to you is a white man and you're a woman of color and everything you say, they tell you you're wrong? Well, they haven't violated any code of conduct because they're being respectful, but they're still telling you you're wrong and never listening to you and sort of not believing you have anything of value to say, right? And that's something I have witnessed within my own community. I can't, I go and talk to other men. I'm like, this is happening. They're like, meh, what am I going to do? Well, because we're in a community. There's no HR department. There's no, nobody's calling somebody a racial slur. That's easy. Yeah, it's interesting, but it gets built into the fabric, I think. And I, I'm sort of like, so, you know, you can't do these jobs without being an optimist. And so I'm thinking with the self-sovereign, self-sovereign identity world, It can be true, and I'm just making this up as I'm saying it, so you can tell me you've thought of this and this is garbage, but I think it can also be true that we can also present 
with a stack of experience credentials in the world that you describe in a way that, I, you know, maybe daddy was rich and I went to a fancy pants school, but I haven't not just purchased books, but consumed them, participated, written, um, inquired. You know, there's a lot of activities that you do to make yourself more commercially interesting as well as socially interesting. And I wonder sometimes if some of these folks that are coasting along and benefiting from a lot of kind of wink and nod goodwill, would that continue if you constantly, as often I have found in my own personal experience, as a woman in tech, you have to go against type and do the things that your parents tell you never to do, which is to brag and to your own horn and reestablish your credentials and bona fides again and again. You know, and I'm a girl mid fifties, y'all. I'm still doing it today. And it was really interesting. Recently, I was asking a gentleman to just script out what are we going to do within the next six months? And Boy, he thought that was like such an offensive question because, of course, he was at working at this logo and that logo. Do you think that self-sovereign identities, if we are curating and we are sort of collecting these credentials, could it be that there's at least a little more proof point to sort of combat the kinds of things that you're talking about? Could we have a more objective and weirdly more human experience? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I think my colleague that I work with on a project called Human First Tech, Shereen Mitchell, says there is no technology fix for the human condition. So SSI is not a panacea. <laughs> That's true. And nor, and nor do we want it. No. So SSI is not a panacea. But I think if you are not coming from privilege and you do the work to earn credentials, which is one path into these systems, then you're going to have new tools to be able to express yourself. So the U.S. government via the Department of Education is putting a lot of work into what they call learner. Learner, they don't call them students, right? Because I'm on the job and I got training. Now I have a credential that says I have training X from employer Y. Oh, but when I go get my next job now, I can show those credentials from my that I have from work or, you know, even in the military, like how do they support veterans having documentation of all the things that they learned while they were in service so they can take that to the private sector and get jobs based on those skill sets, right? That's really important to figure out how to do when the U.S. government's backing these basically SSI to do this, which is fantastic, right, in terms of supporting micro-credentialing and giving folks who need support finding, you know, veterans need support finding civilian jobs that are, meet them where they are with this, the amazing skills that they have from their service, right? These are tools that if we can shape them and support them being used can help, but it still doesn't solve the problem of ultra privilege and sort of gaming the system via the gold coins in your shoes that you got at the beginning of life. Yeah, I think that's right. But I do, th you know, I mean, that's, that's always going to be a way, whether it's a better way or not, but it'll always be a way. But I, I think it's really interesting to think about the untapped potential in our economy through people that maybe both people 
complete their military service as lieutenants, uh, one in extreme financial procurement activities, another one in machine work, same rank, same organization, vouched for credential. That's great service. Yay. But the nuance, I think, adds to the human, but it also adds to the economy too, which is sort of I'm, I'm bringing us back into the smarter market. Like, how does this play to enhance and improve and increase the gambling? Everything investment is gambling, as we all know. How do we get the right information and the right odds to make better gambles about the future? How does all of this fit with identity and and who we are and how we are as a society. Yeah. Right now we have a lot of questions about who we are as a society. Yeah. We brought out all our uglies in 2020. <laughs> we brought them all out. We're like, here it is. We ugly inside. <laughs> oh, man. You know, but I also think that that's a part of the, you know, human condition, both our growth as individuals. And it's also what we need to do as you know, we're at this point, we are a global civilization having global impact. And we need to figure out a different way of collectively relating to the planet that we live on. And I think tech back, to, you know, bring it back to the planet work theme, global ecology and information technology. I mean, one of the one of the entities putting a lot of money into investing in this technology is the province of British Columbia. And one of the things that they're looking at verifiable credentials usage for is for energy credits and monitoring different kind of resource um, systems and extractions. So there's a lot of, like, we've been, I'm the identity woman who talks about people identity a lot. And bonus, verifiable credentials is also applied to businesses so that I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Global Legal Entity Identity Foundation or GLIFE, but they were formed after the financial crisis and trying to address the systemic risk that comes from companies incorporated in one place and having lots of subsidiaries and potentially entities across several continents and could they develop a system for a global persistent identifier for corporations that could be used across their transactions with government across many jurisdictions? Because I have a little tiny corporation. I have a corporation number from the state of California, but that's just my incorporation with the state of California. So that works when I, if I want to talk to the California state government and probably if I talk to the U.S. federal government. But if my little business wants to like talk, I even have this happening right now. I'm doing a contract, like reviewing some proposals with the European entity. They're like, please send us your tax domicile record. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And I have to go apply for the, to the federal government for them to write a letter to prove to this entity in Europe that I actually do business in the US. Like I'm incorporated in the US. I'm like, this is crazy, people. Just give me a verifiable credential that says I'm incorporated in the state of California and let me send that over to those Europeans and not some like get another piece of paper. So hopefully we can use this. And there's a whole bunch of work being done around verifiable credentials for packages. So supply chain and one of my favorite companies in this space, Transmute, is working on verifiable credentials for steel imports. 
So I think it has enormous potential to transform many things with better information that's persistent across the life cycle of people, businesses, things. And that could change the economy in some really good ways. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets and our continuing examination of digital identity and its role in building a trust-based economy. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by leaving your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Your support and engagement means the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABEX, I'm Michelle Dennity. See you again next week. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.